our series we've just called Love Better. Now, um, I think if I were to ask anybody, do you think your family, your relationship, your marriage, the world would be a better place if you loved better? I think everybody would say, well, sure. Uh, here's where we often fall short. How do you do that? How, how do you, do you, you know, do you uh, grit your teeth? <laughs> do you stare? You know, do you, do you concentrate more? Like, how do you love better? And that's what this series has been about. But we, we kind of backed up at the beginning and said, wait a minute, um, let's first get a good definition of what does it mean to be spiritually mature? Because these things are, are connected. Spiritual maturity is this. It's defined by and it's measured by love. So um, there is no higher definition, there is no greater definition. It basically means this, that your life has been so transformed by the love of God that you've become a loving person. That's the infallible sign. It's not gifts, it's not power, it's not influence, it's not success, it's not sacrifice, it's not generosity, it's not uh, working hard, it's not accomplishing a lot, it's one thing, it's love. To be a spiritually mature, you've been transformed and you've become a loving person. Now, that doesn't mean that you have a certain personality. All personality types can be loving, right? But it's that you've become a loving person. Now, here's the challenge. When you and I enter into Jesus' family, uh, we enter into this new family, this new community, this new community of faith, and Jesus has uh, a new, new plan and a new dream for you. And he has new ways of living life and new priorities and new ways of doing relationships. And that's all a beautiful thing. The problem is we bring the culture of our families and our experiences with us into the family of God. And those things don't go away just because we become Christians. So whether you're a Christian or not, those things aren't going to go away until they're broken by the power of Scripture. And so we, we say it like this. Um, Jesus may be in your heart, but grandma and grandpa are in your bones. And they're not going to get out of your bones just because you got saved. You're actually going to have to unlearn some things and relearn some new things and have some things broken. And you're going to have to learn new relationship skills that will help carry this new culture of the kingdom of God in your everyday life. And so we're just calling it Love Better uh, that's how, how we've described this series. Now, um, I want to give you, uh, every week we've given you a skill that we can learn to help us love better. Now, before, I, before we rehearse those, I want to just give you the couple we've already uh, highlighted and give you a new one today. But before we do that, I just want to say I'm, I'm deeply indebted uh, to Pete Scazzaro and his work in Emotionally Healthy Discipleship, which has been a cornerstone resource in this series. And if you want more, you can Google that and you can get uh, all, all the more that you want. But I'm, I'm drawing heavily from he and his wife's work, about 30 years worth of work, to help clarify, put a spotlight on and define this. So let's look at the skills we've talked about. The first skill is receive God's love. So here's the, here's the principle. You cannot give what you do not have. So you can't give something away to someone that you don't, you don't have yourself. So you can't love better if you're not receiving love. And the Bible says God is love. 
He is the source. He's the author. He's the beginning. He's the whole thing. And so if you're not spending any time in your life drawing from the love of God and receiving his personal love for you, you're going to find it very difficult to be giving away to your spouse, your kids, your coworkers, your friends, your church, your neighbors, whoever, giving something you don't have. You can't give what you don't have. Here's the second skill. Treat people as you, not as it. How do you love better? Treat people as you, not as it. In other words, don't treat people as a means to an end that they are a commodity or a resource or they are a problem to be fixed. Every person on earth is created in the image of God and is completely unrepeatable. We've never had a repeatable human in world history. We've never had two identical humans. Every human is completely um, independent and unique. And so if you treat that person as a you as a creation, as a son or daughter of God, not as an it, uh, that's a skill that will help you love better. Here's today. Today we're gonna talk about skill, skill number three, which says embrace Jesus' model for relationships. Now, this is gonna take a, a little bit of setup because what I mean by that is um, Jesus uh, lived an incarnational life. Now, incarnation is a doctrinal word that we use in the church that maybe you've never heard before, maybe you have, maybe you don't know what it is. Here's basically what it says. That Jesus um, was fully God, is fully God. He coexisted equal with the Father and the Holy Spirit in spirit form. He left heaven and he chose to take on a human body and fully immerse himself into our world and live a human life. That's incarnation. That's what the theology of incarnation says. But that also gives us an incredible theology and a model for our relationships that I want to share with you today. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world, he sent his son. So why did Jesus take on an incarnational life? Because the Father was motivated by love for you and us, and that love motivated him to send Jesus into the world from heaven as a human and live among us and fully enter our world to fill our pain, to breathe our air, to, to be touched by what touches us, to walk on the ground that we walk on, and to experience human life. Now, you've probably heard the story. Uh, there was a little girl who was in... Uh, trying to sleep one night, and she was afraid, and so um, she, she screamed and, and then ran into her mother's room, and her, her mother said, what's wrong, what's wrong? She said, there's monsters in my room. She said, baby, there aren't any monsters in your room, so she went into her room and tucked her in, got her calmed down, and, and uh, said a little prayer over her, and she said, baby, there's no monsters in your room. God is in your room. God's here with you. Turned the light off, went back to bed. Soon as the mom laid her head on the pillow, mom! And so she came back in there and she said, she said, what is it? She said, I told you God's in your room. She said, I know God's in my room, but I need somebody with skin in the room. <laughs> Do you know that God knew that we needed somebody with skin? And that's why he sent Jesus. Because it wasn't enough for us to have the knowledge. It wasn't enough for us to read a book. It wasn't enough for us to just hear a doctrine. He sent someone to the earth with skin. 
And that's what Jesus did for each one of us. Jesus, by the way, and that's what the incarnation is, Jesus is still walking among us through the church. In our skin, the church is to be Jesus to the world. We're supposed to model Jesus to the world. So Jesus' incarnation becomes a model for all our relationships. So there are three pieces to this relational model that if you'll take on, it will help you love better in every relationship you have. So here's the first piece. Enter another's world. So I want you to see this. Jesus left heaven, and he fully immersed himself in our world. So to love better, you and I are going to have to figure out how can we immerse ourselves in someone else's world. And the best way, one of the best ways you and I can do that is to learn to listen deeply. To learn to listen deeply. Now that's a challenge for us because it's countercultural to many of our families that we were raised in. It's countercultural to the world that we live in. It's countercultural to human nature. David Augsburger said, being heard is so close to being loved that for the average person, they're almost indistinguishable. So learning to listen deeply will help you love better in your relationship. It'll help you enter into someone else's world. Now, most of the families that we were raised in, if you reflect back on your family and you're honest about it, you know that one person's voice was probably more dominant than other people's voices. In most marriages, one person's voice is more dominant than other voices. In a lot of workplaces, a few people's voices are more dominant than other voices. If you go to the um, local high school cafeteria and you sit and have lunch with a bunch of teenagers, you'll find that there's a few people's voices that are more dominant than all the other voices. And if you look at our media, our media is filled with monologue. We live in a broadcasting culture. We don't live in a listening culture. So this is something that we're going to have to, um, it's going to be a big shift for us to learn. But it is a deeply uh, effective relationship skill to help us. And oftentimes when we do listen, we listen for how we might defend ourselves. Or we wait our turn and, and what the other part, you, you remember, um, uh, have you ever seen any of the Peanuts uh, cartoons? The teacher would go wah, 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 wah. And that's what we kind of hear when other people talk and we wait till their mouth stops moving and then we throw in our opinion. Or we change the subject. Or we finish their sentences. Or we interrupt before they're done talking. You can look through Scripture, and especially in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which record the life of Jesus. There are many, many, many examples of Jesus being fully present with people. You can't imagine sitting down and having... Like if Jesus were on earth today, you can't imagine sitting down and talking with Jesus and him checking his phone ten times while you're talking to him. You can't picture that, can you? No. Why? Because he, he deeply entered our world. And he wasn't distracted when he was here. He deeply entered our world. So Jesus deeply entered our world, and he often did it through listening. Now, here's what I mean by listening. I mean going beyond the facts and the information 
and getting to the feelings. Now, here's how I'm going to say it. I just made this up, so it's not scientific or anything. But until you understand a person's feelings, you have not deeply listened to them. How do you know what deep listening is? You don't just know the facts. You don't just know the information. You know a person's feelings about it, how they feel about what's going on. Now you've deeply listened. Now you've gone beyond uh, the exterior and the outer surface of what's happening. So what I don't mean by deeply listening is, is that you agree. Deeply listening is not the same thing as agreement. And deeply listening doesn't mean that you're working on trying to solve a problem. So you can actually listen to something that you disagree with and maybe not even say anything. Because deeply listening is about entering into their world not trying to get them to be a part of yours. That's what deeply listening is about. So um, now I will say this, research proves that if you'll deeply listen, actually current research says 70% of problems are resolved. You know why? Because a lot of people just need to be heard. That's all they need. They need somebody to hear and to listen and to try to understand. But the point of deep listening is not to solve problems the point is to fully enter their world, listen to this, and to try to feel like what it feels like to be them. What does it feel like to be them? This is what Jesus did when he came to earth. He came and put human skin on, and he experienced what it felt like to be one of us. Aren't you glad he did that? It's amazing that he did that. To love better... You and I need to work on entering into someone's world until we get a better understanding of what it feels like to be them. And so I, I, I brought an example this morning that I want us just to work with for a minute. I, it's, it's a controversial example. It's, it's a, a current issue that um, we've all been touched by in some way. Um, but I, I, I want to try to... Enter into someone else's world, okay? I want to do a little exercise with this. So um, current statistics say that somewhere around 20 to 25% of Gen Z experience same-sex attraction, okay? Now, if you're going to enter into someone else's world, what might that look like? Imagine that when you were 13 years old, you begin to experience... Um, feelings of attraction to the same sex. What would that, what would that have felt like? Would, would you be afraid? Would you be scared? Would you feel ashamed? Would you feel guilty? You didn't ask for it. You didn't maybe even want it. But you felt it. And you denied it. And you pushed back. And you tried to ignore it. And you tried to become more attracted to people of the opposite sex, but it didn't work. And a year or two went by, and you prayed about it, and you asked God to take it away, and he didn't take it away. And so maybe now you're mad at God. And you say, why does God do this to me? And you're afraid, and you don't know who you can trust, and you don't know who to tell, because you don't know if unveiling this knowledge is going to land you somewhere where you're rejected. Maybe you don't know if you can trust your parents with this. So now you're 17 or 18, and you're about to move out of the house, and you're about to go to college, 
and you don't know who's safe to tell, you don't know how to resolve it, you don't know which way to go, you don't know if you should embrace it or reject it. But there's this tornado of voices all around your life. And then imagine maybe this is your son or daughter. And you're the parents. How do you feel? Who do you tell? Who do you not tell? Do you, do you, do you see that? Do you feel that? That's what it feels like to try to put yourself in someone else's shoes. How, how does it, but there are a lot of different examples that we can draw from. How would it feel for those of, who, of, of, those of us who are in the majority, how would it feel to be a minority? What would that feel like? How would it, how would it feel to be a, a first generation immigrant? Or handicapped? Or, or a woman in a male-dominated industry? Or how would it feel to be divorced? Or how would it feel to be a first-generation Christian who doesn't have all the background and the knowledge and doesn't know all the words? How would it feel to come from a different religion into Christianity? Uh, maybe a question you, you might want to ask if you're brave enough. M- maybe you want to ask your husband, how, how, does, how does it feel? How does it feel to be my husband? How does it feel to be my wife? What does that feel like? What's that experience? How does it feel to be a 13-year-old growing up in an unstable world filled with overwhelming technology and fast-paced messages? How does it feel? What does that feel like to try to grow up in a world like that? What does it feel like to be an older person who grew up in a world where change happens slower and now you've had more change in the last 10 years of your life than the first 60 what does that feel like? Do you, do you see what I'm saying? You, to deeply, and then, and then here's what you do. You ask a question like that, and then you just stop and listen. I'm not asking you for stats. I'm not asking you for demographic studies. I'm asking you for how do you feel? How does that feel to you? That's what it means to deeply enter into someone else's world. But I will caution you. It requires emotional maturity. Relationships are often damaged because we don't have the maturity to listen deeply because when we do, we hear things we disagree with. We hear things that make us uncomfortable. We have to listen to people that are diametrically opposed maybe to some of our beliefs or philosophy. We listen to things that are painful for us to hear, so we just don't do it. But to love better, we have to enter into another's world. Now here's the second piece of Jesus' relationship model. And then we have to hold on. You have to hold on to yourself. You know, I think one of the greatest resistances that we face in entering another person's world, we don't often do it because we're afraid we'll lose ourselves. We're afraid we'll become something that we don't want to be. We're afraid that we'll believe something we don't really believe. We're afraid that we'll uh, get sucked into a different way of thinking, and we're afraid of that. We'll end up agreeing somehow, so we just keep our distance. Here's the problem. That prevents us from loving better. It takes maturity to hold on to your sense of self. It takes a lot of maturity. And Jesus fully entered our world... And he remained his full self. He didn't give up any part of himself. John 3.13 tells us this. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power 
and that he had come from God and he was returning to God. In other words, Jesus knew where he came from, he knew where he was going, and he knew who he was. And he knew whose he was. And so Jesus never gave up one inch of his full identity. That's why he's the perfect example. And you know what he did? If you read this passage further, do you know what he did after the Bible says he knew where he came from, knew where he was going, knew who he was? Do you know what he did after that? He started washing the disciples' feet. It takes deep maturity to enter another's world and hold on to yourself. But when you have that sense of identity, you are free to serve people. You are free from so many of the other things. So Jesus remained faithful to his true self, but by doing that, do you know Jesus disappointed a lot of people? Jesus disappointed the Pharisees, the religious leaders. He was a constant disappointment to them. At one point, his family thought he was out of his mind, the Bible said. He disappointed the disciples because they projected onto him what kind of Messiah they wanted him to be, and he didn't live up to that. He disappointed Judas because Judas wanted Jesus to operate differently. He disappointed all the people in Jerusalem when he entered in on Palm Sunday, and they were waving the palm branches, Hosanna, Hosanna. Here comes the deliverer. Here comes the king. He's going to kick Rome out of our country, and he's going to set us free. And he disappointed everybody that thought that. But Jesus was secure enough in the Father's love that, listen to this, he could endure their disappointments. How many people's disappointments can you endure? How many people's expectations can you not meet and endure it? That's what it means to hold on to yourself. We struggle to hold on to ourselves because we've not done the inner work to know ourselves. So we get easily swept up into other people's opinions and expectations. And so, for example, maybe you're at work and there's a coworker that says something or does something that hurts you, but you go, I don't want to say anything because I don't want to appear to be overly sensitive. Or maybe you have a friend that uses demeaning language and you say, well, I, 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 it's demeaning to other people, but you say, I don't want to say anything because I don't want them to think that I'm judgmental or arrogant. Or let's put it in the church context. Maybe you're a, a leader in our church and you have a volunteer serving on your team that's holding the whole team back. But you don't say anything because you know if you say something, they might get offended and leave or talk about you or whatever. And so the whole team just works around them. See, it takes emotional maturity to wade into that. I'm a first-generation pastor, and my family did not have a very strong Christian culture. And so I had to learn a lot about the Christian faith, about the church, about being a pastor. I didn't know a lot of those things, and my tendency was I tended to, early in ministry, and still do, to lose. This, out of the two of these, entering another's world or holding on to yourself, I've struggled with holding on to myself. I've tended to, got, to get absorbed into other people's expectations of what I ought to do or what a good pastor ought to do. So I remember when we were first in ministry, the first year we were in ministry, there was this young lady that was a little younger than my wife and I, and she was, uh, she was, uh, she was, uh, she was uh, edgy, you know what I'm saying? 
Like she had an edge. She, was, she had some brokenness. And so we thought, you know what? Maybe she just needs to be loved. Maybe somebody just needs to show her love. Great. That's great. But what's your definition of love? What does that look like? So she was going to have a surgery, so my wife and I went over to the hospital, and uh, we, we stayed there with her and before surgery and during the surgery, and then after the surgery we were there, and we stayed with her family. We stayed at the hospital for eight hours because we wanted, it was important for us to make a statement that she would know that we loved her, somebody loved her. Now, it didn't help, <laughs> but it did hurt. Let me tell you how it hurt. What nobody saw were the hours that I worked later that week at night and the hours I worked that weekend to try to catch up from all the work I didn't get done because I was at the hospital for eight hours. So I didn't do a good job of holding on to myself. I didn't do a good job of being true and honest about the limits that I had and what was appropriate in that moment and, and all of that because I had not... I was not mature enough and I had not done the inner work enough to know even who I was. So what we do oftentimes is we hold on to ourselves and we live in, in shallowness. The way we try to hold on to ourselves is we just live in a shallow world and push people away wrongly thinking that we can just hide from others and we're safe. But here's Jesus' way. He deeply entered into the world of others, but he also was deeply uh, anchored in his own world and who he was. So you have to know yourself and you have to have a separate identity. So let me ask you a question, this question. How do you define yourself apart from others? Or can you only define yourself in the context of others? Do you know your identity apart from your spouse? Apart from your kids? Who are you apart from your job? Who are you apart from your title? Who are you apart from your accomplishments? Who are you apart from your reputation? Do you know your own preferences? Do you know your own values? Do you know your own feelings? Do you know your own opinion? Do you know what your own hopes and joys are? Do you know the gifts that God has specifically given to you? Do you know how God is speaking through you and through your personality to your family and to the world? I'll give you a current uh, illustration. So a few months ago, um, a sweet family uh, asked me, hey, uh, we're going to get married next year. Can you, can you do our wedding? And I thought, my goodness, uh, my wife passed away about a couple of months before that. And I thought, man, how, how do, I love this family. <laughs> but like, can I just tell you, after, after 30 years of marriage and losing my wife, it wasn't, it wasn't uh, exciting to me to think about going and performing a wedding. That brought back a lot of memories to me. That was hard. And so here's my dilemma. Do I hold on to myself? <laughs> or, do, or, or what do I do? How do I do this? And so uh, pastors struggle a lot with, you know, being absorbed into other people. And then, and then you think, I don't even know what no looks like. And if I say no, how would that person interpret that? Do they think I don't care? Do they think I don't love them? Do they think I'm, I'm being selfish? Do they think I'm taking longer to heal than I need to? Like, how do, they, how do they interpret that? And then sometimes when you tell people no, they just ghost you. Or sometimes they're nice to your face and then they just go talk about you behind your back. And so I, I don't know. 
And then the answer that I needed to give was so complicated and so long, you, you don't want to give somebody such a long answer, and then they go, man, I'm not asking you anything ever again. It was like therapy, you know? And I say, so I, so I look, I sat on that for a few weeks because I was like, I, I don't, I don't, I'm grieving and I don't, I think by the time we get there, I'll probably be okay, but I don't know and the future's like uncertain to me and I, and how, where I ended is if I'm being honest with myself, if I'm holding on to my limits and my condition today, I'm not in a position where I can even make a good decision about that. So let me try, now the work is, how do I figure out how to say no? So then I tried to write a good email because what I wanted to do is I, I love this family. I wanted to communicate love, but honesty. So I did, and fortunately, uh, I got a beautiful response back that said, and I'm like, yay, good, thank you, God. You know, I, I, didn't, I didn't want there to be any tension. I didn't want there to be any uh, frustration. But look, to love better... You and I have to learn how to deeply enter into another person's world without losing ourselves. We have to hold on to who we are. So let me give you the third piece, and, and we're, we're wrapping up. The third piece is live in the tension between both worlds. Okay? So you enter into another's world, you hold on to yourself, but you don't actually live in either of those realities. In relationships, you live in the tension of the middle. Jesus modeled this beautifully. He lived in the tension between the two worlds. He lived suspended between heaven and earth. He left a perfect world in heaven and came and took human skin on and he fully entered our world and he was misunderstood and he was persecuted and it's what killed him. It's what got him killed because he wouldn't let go of either one. He said, for God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. I'm not gonna let go of this love that God has for the world, but neither am I gonna let go of my identity as the son of God in heaven. He refused to let go of either one and that's why they crucified him. By the way, relationships are a type of death. <laughs> it requires to hold in the middle, <laughs> requires a lot of negotiation and a lot of tension and a lot of maturity, but Jesus literally hung on a cross between the two. So I want to show you this one more time and let you look at it this way. So um, Jesus entered another's world, that's earth. He held on, hold on to yourself. He held on to the heavenly version of himself, but he lived in the tension between the two worlds, and that's where we get the cross of Jesus Christ. So, all relationships are a discipleship issue. All relationships. Look, I'm for marriage conferences, I'm for parenting conferences, I'm for counseling, I'm for all those things. But fundamentally, most fundamentally, relationships of every kind are a discipleship issue and flourish with love. Let me show you one last verse, Philippians 2, 5 through 8. In your relationships. What are we talking about? 
Relationships. Which relationships? Your relationships. All your relationships. In your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. What was this mindset? Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Listen to this. And being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So, your relationships are not going to cause you, hopefully, to physically die. But to take this relationship model, you're going to have to live in the tension. It's going to cost time and energy and emotional and mental investment. And you can't fall asleep at the wheel and have good relationships. If your mentality is what's the smallest amount of effort I can put into this and have a good relationship, I can promise you you're not going to have a good relationship. So what do you do? You have to deeply enter into another person's world. If you want to love better, you've got to deeply enter into another person's world and you have to ask, what does it feel like to be you? And then you have to hold on to yourself. You have to, you have to understand your own limitations, your own humanity, your own identity, and you have to be, you have to be honest about that. And then you have to live in the tension between those two worlds. Would you stand with me this morning? Our worship team's coming and I... Lord, I just ask today that you would help us. I I hope this teaching has inspired you to turn your heart to God and say, God, help me. Because this thing of loving better is no simple, easy task, and it's not going to be checked off the list tomorrow. It is life, and it is what life is about. And so, God, we pray today that you would help each one of us for the sake of our family, for the sake of our marriage, for the sake of our children, for the sake of our friends, for the sake of our parents, for the sake of the community, for the sake of the church, for the sake of the world. God, help us love better. Lord, we turn our hearts toward you. And today we reach out and we worship you. As our worship team leads, would you just worship him? Lord, today we reach out and worship you. Just tell him, Lord, I love you and I worship you this morning.